The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. One of the reasons you may be listening to this podcast is if you want insight into what's going on uh, in the M&A world, particularly about who is going to buy whom in 2016. Well, our guest this week has some really unique knowledge on just that topic. He has information using technology that help companies conduct due diligence on other companies, basically a sign that M&A may be coming three to six months away. It's the kind of information that the general retail investor can easily get. Well, Matt Porzio, Vice President of M&A Strategy at Intralinks, will explain how this all works, and he'll give you a pretty granular insight into what sectors and what regions seem like they'll be hot and cold for M&A in the first six months of 2016. Very interesting information. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And this week, a Bloomberg-exclusive China National Chemical also known as Chem China, has raised its bid for Swiss pesticide maker Syngenta in a deal that would mark the biggest ever foreign purchase for a Chinese company, yet another biggest ever, a theme you have already heard on uh, past Deal of the Week episodes. And joining us, one of the reporters that broke the deal for Bloomberg, Bloomberg's European Managing Editor of Deals, Aaron Kirchfeld, joining us from Frankfurt, Germany. Guten Tag, Aaron. Guten Abend, actually. Guten Abend. Sorry. What, what, what is that? Good evening? G- correct. Okay. It's, uh, we're approaching uh, 7 p.m. over here. Gotcha. And, uh, so, sorry about that. I, I, I'll brush off on my German. <laughs> so first of all, for, for an audience that maybe isn't quite familiar with this, what is ChemChina exactly and what's Syngenta? Because some of the people in the United States not as familiar with these companies uh, unless they've been following our fantastic M&A coverage. Yeah, I mean that that's a good question and the and the honest answer is I didn't know what ChemChina was until we started breaking news on this topic. So, ChemChina is as you mentioned it's it's a Chinese state-owned uh pesticides and uh agrochems maker. So, uh it's state-owned hence they haven't got a lot of attention in the US let alone in Europe, but that was uh, the case until earlier this year uh when they did a big deal in Italy when they bought Pirelli tires. You may know them from uh, fast race tracks, Ferraris, etc. So that kind of raised their profile. Um, so they're less well-known because they're, they're private, but they're getting a higher and higher profile, especially since our coverage and others of the Syngenta deal. What's Syngenta? 
Syngenta, on the other hand, is um, the world's biggest uh, crop chemicals maker. So if you think about the food that's on your table, uh, a lot of that stuff, unless you're buying organic at Whole Foods, is coming from um, big mass-produced uh, farms in the U.S. and worldwide, and that's all getting fungicides, insecticides, etc. Um, they're the ones making a lot of those chemicals. They're the world's biggest that kind of keeps pests away, etc. Um, so they are based in Switzerland. Um, they are pretty big, $36 billion market cap, um, annual sales about $14 billion. And if you want to figure out where they trace their roots to, there was a huge uh, merger back in 2000 from a Swiss drug company called Novartis and Zeneca, which is um, a British pharma company. They kind of combined their agro and chemical business, and that created what is now today called Syngenta. So they're the biggest pesticide makers opposed to like Dow and DuPont, which we talked about last week, which do more than just that, right? That's right. So Dow and DuPont, while they do have a huge agrochems business, and that was one of the reasons they decided to merge to kind of add their, you know, to combine their strengths, they do a lot of chemicals, specialty chemicals, et cetera, and that's less Syngenta. They're way more focused on kind of uh, crop protection as well as seeds. So things that, you know, turn out to like gen- genetically modified seeds, et cetera, corn, soybeans, et cetera. Okay, great. So what's the news that, that, that we broke this week? So the news we broke this week is kind of an ongoing saga. Um, uh, you may recall early this year, Monsanto, another big American crop chemicals maker, um, they made an approach to buy Syngenta, which was rejected multiple times. So things cooled off there for a little bit. But then uh, we broke the news that the Chinese, ChemChina, has made an approach to Syngenta, which was initially deemed too low, the offer they didn't like the price. Um, and this uh, week we broke that they've come back, the Chinese, with an even bigger offer where they've made two proposals, one to buy 70% with an option to buy the remaining 30% later on, um, and another all-cash offer for 100%. So this is a big move um, because, as you mentioned, it would be the biggest Chinese acquisition abroad ever, um, and it's also part of a a wider consolidation move in that space of agrochemicals. Right. So is this happening sort of as a reaction to the Dow-DuPont deal? Uh, no, I think that would be, uh, this has been going on bubbling for a while. So what you have in that space is the big six, uh, Dow DuPont, as you mentioned, you've got uh, Syngenta, you've got two Germans, BSF and Bayer, and Monsanto. So there has been obvious need for consolidation because they're facing competitive pressures. So everyone's been talking about how there's a need for consolidation. And kind of the common theme that everybody was talking about from Dow DuPont side was that everyone is speaking to everyone. It was just a question which chess piece moves first. That happened to be Dow DuPont, uh, which caught some people by surprise. But, uh, you know, Syngenta has publicly said it's talking to various players. But post-Dow DuPont, the merger there, the merger plans, it's just increased the pressure immensely for Syngenta to do a deal. So at this stage, do we expect Monsanto to come back to Syngenta, or is ChemChina now the favorite, you think, to buy this thing? Uh that's the million dollar, well, maybe billion dollar question. Um, will Monsanto come back? So uh, we don't deal with millions on this show. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, no, I think the you know look the the Chinese seem to have uh, a step or a step ahead of Monsanto, and um, but our sources have made very clear that Syngenta is anxiously waiting to see if Monsanto makes a move um, after Kim try to uh, you know ha- handed in an improved offer according to our sources. The, the main question is will this force Monsanto's hand. Um, but there's some big questions there because Monsanto, if they were to combine with Syngenta, there would be
be some huge regulatory issues. And as one person put it recently, Dow DuPont already have their deal in the pipeline, so the, the next deal will be the second in line. So that's even going to make it more difficult to get any kind of regulatory approval for a combo of Monsanto Syngenta. So I think the Americans are definitely aware of that, that hurdle. Um, and it's also a question, can they pay up as much as the Chinese um, are willing to pay? Because one big difference between the offers was the, the Chinese, they offered all cash, whereas Monsanto was a mix of shares and cash. By the way, what was the uh, last biggest ever purchase by a Chinese company, foreign purchase? Uh, the last biggest was actually in the oil space. Um, the Chinese, um, they did a huge deal in Canada. Uh, it was Sinuk. Um, they bought Canadian energy uh, producer Nexen for about $15 billion back in 2013. So, so with this deal, are we at the, uh, the denouement yet, or is this thing just going to keep rolling into 2016? Uh, well, we were told that there's a key board meeting this week, um, but um, some sources say you could get a resolution um, as early as uh, this year. Others have said it will drag on to next year, and I think a lot of it depends on how Monsanto uh, reacts. But uh, there was an interesting interview with the chairman of Syngenta, who for the first time indirectly acknowledged the fact that they're talking to ChemChina as well as others. He came out and said, we're in advanced and formal intense negotiations with competitors about a possible combination. That was the most explicit kind of confirmation that they're talking um, and in advance talks with various players, even if he wouldn't go out and name them. But yeah, I think uh, this will definitely keep us busy over the Christmas period. I was just going to say that. It'll be a very relaxing Christmas for the folks at Syngenta and perhaps Monsanto as well, uh, uh, and certainly ChemChina, uh, if uh, this, assuming everyone involved celebrates Christmas. Aaron yep. Kirchfeld. European Managing Editor of Deals at Bloomberg and one of the reporters that broke this story. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's bring in Matt Porzio, Vice President of M&A Strategy at Intralinks, who's going to be a real-life crystal ball for us. Matt, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thanks, Al. Uh, so, Matt, maybe before we get started, just tell us a little bit about what Intralinks is, what you do, what vice, being Vice President of M&A there is exactly, uh, and sort of what your product is. Sure. So by way of background, I was a banker for six years before joining Intralinks, doing business and consumer services banking, equity capital markets, and cross-border M&A. Uh, joining Intralinks 12 years ago, I helped them move their general collaboration and document sharing technology into the M&A space. I've been heading up strategy around that line of business, anything to do with, you know, our technology being utilized in mergers and acquisitions or any type of strategic transaction. But Intralinks as a firm is probably best known for pioneering uh, the virtual data room concept, so essentially taking that M&A due diligence process up to the cloud, helping people securely exchange that data uh, that's needed to be reviewed for deals to close. And who uses this technology? In other words, uh, is this just sort of middle market firms, or, or are, are the Fortune 500 companies using this as well? Uh, really, everyone is, is using the technology. It's now become the standard way for due diligence. So there have been deals, $50 billion deals on our, on our platform this year, all the way down to, you know, $2 million uh, financing deals. Um, so it's really the full range. And, you know, what's interesting is we see more than a third of all M&A deals globally in this relatively early stage, and we get really great insight into deal flow, typically six months uh, before those deals are announced. And so, when you say due diligence, what exactly do you mean? 
Yeah, so the process of you know sharing all that in-depth financial, legal, product information um, between a seller, the target company, and the potential buyers of that asset, right? So when I was a banker, that process took place with boxes and binders in a room and a bunch of accountants, bankers, lawyers, experts sitting down and reviewing that data so that you could then go home and make a decision. Now that whole process happens online on a system like Intralink. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your technology and, and, and what exactly is confidential and, and, and what part of the technology uh, you're aware of in order to help forecast. Yeah, so, you know, obviously all of the actual information and, you know, the parties within the deal are highly confidential, right? We don't have, I'm not looking into to see that. But on the aggregate, we have a sense of the deals that are looking to use our technology, right, that contact us and have an interest in, you know, as they move into that key due diligence phase of leveraging the technology. So we get to see kind of, you know, what regions are coming from, what sectors uh, those people entering the due diligence phase are from. Uh, and we can gain some really great insight, which we produce now uh, into our deal flow predictor report on a quarterly basis. Really just highlighting the trends and changes in deal flow on a global basis, on a regional basis, and a sector basis. All right, great. So let's start broad and we'll get more granular. So overall, looking into the next six months, do we expect the next six months of 2016 to be up from a year ago or down from a year ago? Yeah, so we're we're expecting growth, right? Um, more moderate growth than we've seen before, and I'll get into the details in a second. But right now, we're able to predict through the first quarter of 2016, and for that first quarter, we're looking at six to eight percent growth in terms of the number of global M&A deals versus the first quarter of 2015. But again, that growth is slowing and decelerating. The last quarter, we predicted 9%. The quarter before that, 11%. Uh, and so we're seeing sort of a moderation uh, you know, to the level, really record levels of activity we've seen in the global market. So good and bad, I suppose, for, for people that uh, make their living on M&A. Uh, good in the sense that it's up from an already record year, right? So that, yep. that's probably a good sign. But bad maybe if the trend is downward. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we talk to our customers and clients on a regular basis, and, you know, we also do as part of the deal flow predictor a survey of 500 M&A professionals each quarter to gauge their sentiment and get a sense of what they're thinking uh, and put that next to the data. And, you know, the last two quarters, we're definitely seeing optimism and expectations starting to wane. Uh, we actually just finished the survey that will be in our next deal flow predictor report in January. Uh, and for the first time in two years, Alex, we're seeing uh, deal makers actually expected to, to do less deals over the next six months uh, than the previous six-month period. All right, so let's get a little bit more granular now. So what sectors specifically seem like they're still ripe for M&A? Maybe they haven't quite reached peak M&A and it's coming. Yeah, so what we're going to see in terms of uh, more, you know, sector uh, announced M&A activity, you're going to see that in consumer and retail on a global basis. You're going to see healthcare, which includes life sciences, uh, continue to, to grow and see more deal flow uh, through the first quarter of 2016. Real estate's interesting. We've seen a few quarters of growth that will continue, but that's really off of, you know, an abysmal uh, post-global financial crisis period for, for many years. And then, you know, tech sector remains a pretty steady performer out there, you know, not tremendous growth uh, in, in this current quarter. And then the material sector actually is seeing a reversal. 
reversal of fortune. We're seeing that grow for the first time in many quarters. You know, obviously Dow DuPont's a great indicator of that, but commodity prices in certain markets have kind of spurred action uh, in the material sector as well. All right, and, and, and on the other side of the coin, what looks particularly weak? Yeah, you know, we're seeing weakness persist in energy and power uh, and the industrial sector, although within energy and power and oil and gas, we're finally starting to see some signs of life, uh, and we think that's going to start to heat up as 2016 progresses, uh, and we're going to see larger deals, but also smaller asset transactions beyond just midstream and oil and gas. You're going to start to see the EMP or the exploration side of the business uh, really start to, to tick up. So do you have some insight into the size of deal as well? Yeah, I mean, we generally can gauge that. I mean, we we end up matching it back uh, after the fact once the deal value is announced, but we can gauge it based on where the deal flow is coming from. So the bulge bracket firms that we work with, right, the large investment banks that typically do, you know, uh, deals well over $500 million, uh, and do most of the mega deals, you know, we've seen an uptick in their business um, with us over the, the past couple of years, but even, you know, into the first quarter quarter of 2016 deals that they're launching and advising on right now. But really, you know, the, the growth is, is really across the value spectrum. But those mega deals get the headlines, and they're certainly being done and will continue to be done. And can you match the mega deal to sector? In other words, you just talked about how you figured there might be another media telecom mega deal. Is that something you can see in the, in, in the data, that there, there is indication that there's being due diligence being done on one or two of these things? Well, we really can't see what the the eventual value will be at the stage they're in due diligence, but we certainly have you know a sense that there are multiple deals in the sectors I mentioned that have a, you know a large amount of uh, what I'd call bulge bracket participants, uh, both on the the legal and advisory side, uh, which is usually a pretty good indicator that those deals will will be multi billion dollar plus deals. Um, but it's really hard to tell if that's a five billion dollar deal or a 40 billion so if deal. you look back six months ago how did your predictions in other words w- w- did you were you pretty successful in predicting what's happened in the, over the last six months yeah you know it's it, it's it's always the question of how good is the the predictor and yeah i mean if you look at the, the growth that we predicted even a year ago, um, you know, say for the full year of 2015, um, you know, we were right on schedule. We were within, you know, uh, less, you know, off less than a percentage point. And the real indicator is, you know, we've actually had statistical analysis firms do a regression on 22 quarters worth of the, the data, and they found that we are 99.9% uh, predicting the uh, the M and A activity announced by Thomson Reuters six months later. So, I mean, it's worked out, and it's it's really been a, a great predictor. But also, that sentiment survey, I think, is also a good kind of counterbalance to just pure data and numbers. So, who is the forecast for? Is it for investors? It's really for uh, you know M and A practitioners, but anyone can use it you know to get a sense of where the market's headed from a strategic transactions M and A standpoint. Right, we started producing it because I was out on the road talking to our client base, you know, the bankers, the lawyers, the private equity and corporate development professionals, and they were asking, well, what are you seeing in the market at your macro level? 
Um, and so it was really for them to get a sense and, and not wait for the historical announced data to get a sense of what's happening in the market. But since then, really everyone has kind of latched onto it as a great indicator of the health of the market, right? The more M&A activity means those companies strategically believe that, you know, the economy, things are getting better and they want to put their, their cash, their capital to work. And do you have any idea on a percentage basis what percentage of deals that make it to due diligence actually get done? Yeah, it's interesting, and, and it's pretty consistent because it's the question we always get, you know, does that change? You know, clearly when you run into something like a global financial crisis, it gets a, a little more challenging. But consistently, it's somewhere in the 15 to 20% range of deals that make it to due diligence that don't end up you know, closing that just can't get through that process. And what's interesting is even in a bad market, you know, you'd think, wow, there's a lot more deals and they either take longer or they don't happen. You know, it's actually balanced out by the fact that the, there are distress deals that have to happen and actually happen even quicker. So it, it all, you know, that's why when we look at that 22 quarters worth of data, it, it all comes out in the wash. You mentioned another thing you could tell was regions. So are there certain regions that look like they're they're more ripe for M&A activity? Yeah, it really is a mixed bag when we look at it regionally. So the recent DFP showed real strength in the European market. So Q1 2016 M&A activity will be up 11% in that region. Um, really strong. The quantitative easing we're seeing, just the overall you know stability or greater stability from a pretty low bar set previously is driving that. Uh, Latin America saw some dramatic growth in the last quarter but really off of an abysmal base of deal flow. So uh, we're not sure and we don't believe that that's sustainable. I think that might be a blip on the radar in in terms of Latin America just in Q1 2016. Asia Pacific is weakening. Growth will be about 3% down from over 30% the last quarter. And that's mainly due to the concerns around China's growth uh, and long-term prospects. And then when we focus in on North America, it was another weak spot into the first quarter of 2016, um, the first down quarter at 3%, uh, down 3% year over year for, for Q1, first down quarter in two years, Alex. So some of that's due to some of the uncertainty uh, in the overall market, but it's also the fact that the M&A is somewhat cyclical, right? We were at a record pace and record levels. Uh, people sometimes just have to, you know, uh, digest and ingest those deals. There's a bit of a pause, restocking of the pond in terms of assets coming to market. Matt, did you ever think you'd be doing this with your life as a young lad? <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I, I was always interested in financial markets, uh, you know, doing investment banking for years, you know, living in the thick of it was great. But then taking a step back and, and focusing in on technology that enables the process and then getting this really interesting data, it's been good. Matt Porzio, Vice President of M&A Strategy at Intralinks. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks, Alex. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are involved in deals real-time in future episodes. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And also, please take a minute to rate and review the show 
while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. We're off next week for the holidays, so we'll see you in 2016. We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. And Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check them out and subscribe today. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.